The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke chapter 16, beginning at the first verse. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my, man- that my master is taking the position away from me? Am I strong enough to dig, and am I ashamed enough to beg? I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may come into their homes. So, summoned his master- so summoning his master's debtors, one by one, and he asked this first, How much do I owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, How much do, I, how much do you owe? He replied, A hundred containers of wheat. He said, he said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master con- commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of his age are more shrewd in dealing, and I tell, and I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into their eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in, a, in very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is donest, dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust, you to, the, to, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the, hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the reflection of all our hearts and minds transform us into your likeness by the Spirit's grace and power. Amen. Well, thanks, Alex. And that's all as clear as mud to everyone. Stay with me. There's lots of discussion amongst biblical scholars about this passage. You're not alone if you're confused. It seems that while the point of the story isn't really too complicated, piecing all the details together is. There are two questions to ask that will help us to land well. What is meant in this parable and its interpretation? And what does this mean for us? The parable is about two characters, the master and the manager. In some translations, the word steward is used instead of manager, and you might be more familiar with that terminology. The master and the manager live and work in a community. That seems clear. The word used for master is kyrios, 
which we translate as Lord, which of course is the same word that's used for Jesus. So in verse 8, when the master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly, is Luke referring to Jesus or is he referring to the manager's employer? Scholars suggest that the best way to read this passage is to pay less attention to the technical traditions of tradition and the editing process that's taken place, like wondering whether the words came from Jesus or whether uh, it's what's come from Luke, and that we pay attention to two things, the order in which Luke places the material and the recurring themes that we encounter in this passage that appear throughout Luke. So that's what we'll try to do. We'll try to keep an eye on the narrative context as we come to grips with what this parable is saying. This parable about the master and the shrewd manager is only found in Luke. And it follows three parables about being lost and found. The lost sheep and the lost coin which we heard Stuart explore with us last week, and then the parable of the lost sons, which we might know better as the parable of the prodigal son. The parables of the lost coin and the lost sons are also unique to Luke's gospel. Because each of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all constructed very carefully by the author, The placement of the parable of the shrewd manager immediately following the parable of the prodigal son is important, it's significant. And remember that originally there were no verses and chapters so that when we think of this, this also might change the way that we imagine reading through this series of parables. If we were to do that without any chapter divisions, we'd notice that the three lost and found parables are addressed to Jesus' opponents. While today's reading begins, then Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought against him that this man was squandering his property. This parable is addressed to Jesus' disciples. When it comes time for giving instruction, Luke typically addresses the disciples. So imagine you're one of Jesus' disciples. It might be James or John or Peter or one of the many men and women who form the much larger group of followers that Luke calls disciples. You're part of the audience when Jesus tells this parable. As one of Jesus' disciples, you would pick up way more from the story than we do because you would hear the story through Eastern ears and see the story unfolding through Eastern eyes. Most of us hear with Western ears and see with Western eyes and we don't always understand easily. To delve into the fascinating cultural elements of this story in greater detail, of which there are many and we don't have time to do this morning, I'd suggest a book that you might be interested in. It's a book that Stuart and I and many others frequently refer to. It's called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by Kenneth Bailey. 
with lived experience and a lifetime of research into traditional Middle Eastern culture, Bailey's able to provide some cultural scaffolding that can be invaluable when reading passages like this. Has everyone got it? I can give it to you later if you missed it. I said that we would pay attention to the narrative context. Bailey's exploration of this passage draws out some really significant parallels with the preceding parable, the parable of the prodigal son. Have a think about it. Each parable has a noble or a generous, magnanimous, decent master who demonstrates extraordinary grace to a wayward subordinate. Both stories have an ignoble or a dishonourable son slash manager who wastes their father's slash master's resources. The Greek word that's used in this parable for squandering property, the property of the master, is the same as that used in the parable of the prodigal son when the youngest son squandered his father's inheritance. In each parable, the son or manager reaches a moment of awareness regarding the losses that they've encountered. In this parable, the manager asks, what will I do? Which is one of Luke's favorite questions. There's a crisis and there's a need for some decision-making that's been created by the mismanagement of possessions. The The manager finds a solution in a plan where the master's debtors will be obligated to reciprocate the generosity which has been at the master's expense. These debtors that the manager writes off some of the debt to will be at the cost of the master. In both cases, the son or the manager throw themselves on the mercy of the father or the master. Both parables deal with the problem of broken trust and the consequences, especially around the stewardship of wealth. So in light of all of this, the character of both the manager and the master become very important. Is Jesus commending the manager who cheated the master? Or is he showing us something else? The parables followed a very recognisable template. The manager and the master suffer loss. There's a point where the manager figures out how to proceed from the crisis, the solution unfolds, and the manager is commended, even though the master suffers loss. The character of the manager and the master are indeed very important, and they live and work in community. Therefore, the opinion of the community is also important, because it's the people from the community who pass on to the master that's probably not wise to trust the manager. And we get the feeling that the voice of the community is reliable. And we also get the feeling that the master is respected. No one questions his character. He's an honorable and trusted master. The master asks the manager to relinquish the books, to relinquish his power. Yet the accounts 
still seem to be in the manager's hands. The master says, give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. That is, the manager becomes an ex-manager, but he still has control of the books. Kenneth Bailey points out that in a traditional Middle Eastern setting, any person in authority wouldn't expect to be dismissed, any person in authority wouldn't expect to dismiss a manager without days of negotiation. And he, Bailey, gives some examples of the fascinating excuses that might legitimately be offered by the manager for his behaviour. But the manager doesn't offer any of these excuses. In the parable, he accepts his dismissal without discussion. Why? Because just as the prodigal son knew his father to be a loving and just man, so too the manager knows his master to be fair and just. We see this in the extraordinary grace that has been extended to the by the master to this roguish manager. The manager constructs a solution to his problem on the basis of his confidence in the master's generous nature. And this is what he's commended for at the end of the parable. You see, there's a... Uh, and by the way, the, the debts that were written off were not small things. They were really considerable debts. There's a world of difference between these two attitudes. The master applauding the dishonest servant because he acted cleverly and the master applauding the clever servant because he acted dishonestly. In the parable, the master does the first. He applauds the dishonest servant because he acted cleverly. He's praised because he responded in a way that simply demonstrated that he really did have the qualities of a manager. He was doing his job. And the master's left thinking, well, this is a fraud. That's a pretty clever one. He's a rogue, but he came up with a pretty ingenious solution to the problem. So perhaps the parable is built around the psychology of an oppressed peasantry, such as there was in Galilee in Jesus' time. And the manager is presented a little bit like a Robin Hood kind of countercultural figure. Luke uses the phrase, a child of this age, to describe the manager. The master is suggesting that the manager is wise enough to know that his only hope is to trust the unqualified mercy of his generous master, just as the prodigal son trusted in the unqualified mercy of his generous father. And this is grace. And the children of the light, the passage suggests, are a little bit slow to understand this. So what does this mean for us? We live in a material world. We always have, we always will. We are spiritual beings and we are very much physical beings. But it, and it seems that the lure to make material wealth the goal of our lives, the goal of our mind 
and our heart and our soul and our strength and the object of our worship has always been a temptation throughout human history from the earliest of times. God gifted us lives that require physical sustenance. We are gifted with the capacity to appreciate material things. And God said that was good. We're invited to, we're wired to work and earn a living while health and strength and opportunity allow. We are called to share our income with others and to use it in ways that benefit others as well as ourselves. So today's passage isn't saying that we need to deny the physicalness of our being and refuse to make money. It's not saying that. Which is consistent with what we discovered a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 14, where Jesus wasn't saying to the people who responded to the call to become Jesus' disciples that they had to give away all their possessions and live as people who were destitute and reliant on others. What we discovered was that Jesus' call on our lives is to love God more than anything and everyone else. Then, and only then, will everything else assume its right place and value in our lives. Which is just what Jesus is saying here. Jesus, or the master, is saying, no slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. We cannot be effective disciples when we are driven by greed. We cannot safeguard the earth when we are driven by unethical exploitation of the earth's resources for financial gain. We cannot care for others when we are driven by a need to work longer and harder for the end game of amassing wealth simply for its own sake. We cannot be generous when we're preoccupied with our own fear of missing out. We can't love our neighbour when we're only focused on getting ahead and winning at all costs. In fact, we're very likely to forget that we even have a neighbour if we have that mindset. And it's difficult to love ourselves when we only see our life's purpose as striving to have more, be more, do more, so that we feel worthy and valued. The fate of the wealthy and the poor alike is contingent on how the wealthy use their wealth. And I'm mindful as I say that, that as we look ahead and we consider our economic situation, that it, it appears that there are many families who are struggling to make ends meet, that the rental situation is becoming dire, that there are people who are really doing it tough. However, when we consider an Australian lifestyle, when we compare with many places around the world, we are very fortunate with the wealth that we do have at our disposal. Our modern day crisis is the threat to peace and prosperity due to the widening gap between rich and poor and the threat to the sustainability of life on earth due to the careless treatment of fragile ecosystems in the pursuit of wealth creation. 
Jesus' call to every person to serve God first before everything and anyone else without being distracted by the addiction to or the illusion of material wealth is the pathway to life because our ultimate trust and sense of worth lies not in wealth but the one who has gifted us with everything, including life itself. The one who is rich in love, justice, mercy, compassion, forgiveness and grace. And if this all sounds too simplistic as a, a way to live in our complex world, well, I'd really love to hear of an alternative that offers a more fulfilling way to live. Amen.